point of information, you heard about Chris's project? He's going to fling a cow. That's right, he's gonna throw a cow through the air. What do you think about that? We're gonna eat it after. Well, you know, Marilyn, after being hurtled hundreds of feet through the air, this, this poor creature might experience a great deal of physical pain upon impact. You could give it something. Something? Value. Isn't it strange how every character in this episode besides Joel is totally okay with the, the flinging of the cow? Yeah, I guess that he's done something similar in the past, like animal cruelty or something. Wait, <laughs> oh, oh, that we haven't seen. Yeah, yeah, that we haven't Chris seen. Chris has done something like this and they, they just think it's normal? Hmm, I guess. Okay, so if we overanalyze this right now, which is the mission statement of this podcast, they're out there in rural Alaska in the wilderness and the way they live lives and compared to how New York lives lives is completely different. So just like how the native Americans would use every part of the Buffalo and right. they would make sure that it had a purpose. Maybe they realize like the fundamental goal of throwing this poor cow, you know, 500 feet into the air and landing against the ground. Perhaps that is ritualized and to them it's not as savage because they have a purpose for the entire thing rather than sticking it into some sort of factory and, you know. That's true, yeah. It seems to be brought up a, more than once that they're going to eat the cow after it's flung. But still, yeah, I mean, it's not, you're right, it's not just like sending it through a factory, but how is it more humane than, than <laughs> sending it? I guess it's an instant death maybe if, whenever the cow is either hits the ground or whenever it's, flung it instantly breaks all of its bones and dies but it's got to be painful i think joel brings that up oh no it's totally inhumane uh i, I completely agree <laughs> that, that's the that's worst why, way <laughs> that's why Marilyn is suggesting the valium i suppose you know i heard somewhere I, I don't know if it's particularly true but i heard the reason that cats play with mice you know how they swat them around before they uh and the poor mice <laughs> yeah, and right. the, yeah, their lives. I heard it's to cause adrenaline in the mouse and the adrenaline courses through them and it makes them more tasty to eat. Oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> the horrifying. delicious adrenaline. Yeah. I, so this is going to be a very tasty cow uh, once it's flung, I suppose. Uh, okay, Charles, what are we, what are we talking about here? Okay, well, besides tossing cows through the air and uh, getting PETA on us, we are the Northern Overexposure Podcast. My name is Charles, and I'm joined here with my co-host, Lee. That's right. My name is Lee, and I've seen this show, Northern Exposure, quite a few times. Charles, this is your first time watching every episode that we talk about, and you mentioned our mission statement is to overanalyze Northern Exposure, but also... Uh, sort of part of our mission statement is to expand the reach of the show. So every episode we try to bring on someone who has never seen the show before and introduce them to a random episode and see how, how that sticks. Like, does it work out of context? Uh, would you watch the show now? Yeah. And immediately off the bat for this episode, whenever I was seeing the gambit of them tossing the cow, I thought of Monty Python and I thought they weren't even going to reference it. Like I thought yeah. maybe I was like, maybe the sketch came out after this episode aired. Like no, maybe no, they didn't yeah. realize this. No. Yeah. When, when I saw the episode two, I was in high school and we were in high school band together, Charles. We would always, for some reason, they would always put on Monty Python, Holy Grail, like whenever we would not have anything to do in class, we would watch that movie or when we were on a bus going to uh, a different performance, you know, marching band performance, that seemed to always be the movie of choice. So yeah, of course, the flinging of the cow, that, that was already stuck in my brain. Yeah, well, we would always watch three movies okay, from yeah. my recollection. It would definitely be Monty Python. Yeah, pretty it would much be, probably like 80% of the time. Yeah, 80% of the time, so much Monty Python. Spaceballs was the other one. Though, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it was only because 
uh, and he was, he's been on the pod, friend of the pod, Jay, he would always forcefully request that <laughs> space balls be played on the bus. That would be the second one. And the third, it was Ferris Bueller's day off. Right. Yeah. Lots of Ferris Bueller. Drumline was like also a favorite, but you know, to the chagrin of our drumline, we, we thought that was such a fake representation of a, of a drumline in a movie, but that, that seemed to be in rotation a lot as well. Yeah, we would only go through those certain movies uh, on the ride to the bus. Oh, I got another one. Uh, Major Pain was another. Wait, what's Major Pain? That's the one with um, the weigh-in, and he's like this drill sergeant who gets demoted, so now he has to you know, teach like boot camp for kids. Wait, like so the parents would send their kids to the military? No, it's like a, it's like a summer camp. Oh, uh, is this like a Disney Channel original movie or something? Uh, not Disney Channel, but it's a comedy. Man, that sounds like a premise for one. Definitely. Like, yeah. like uh, Fat Camp. I think that's, is uh, that the name of the heavyweights. movie? Heavyweights. Heavyweights, yes. Which is about a fat camp. They could have called it Fat Camp. Yeah, they could have. That sounds very insensitive to call it just right. Fat Camp. It, it, just saying the words out loud makes me, I had to hesitate. Yeah. <laughs> I, been, I was like, I don't know if I'm allowed to say Heavyweights this. is a better title. Um, <laughs> okay, so this episode is called Burning Down the House. You know, I guess they took the title from the... Talking Heads song, I think in your prediction last episode, you were wondering if David Byrne was going to make an appearance. Sadly, he does not. But um, this is the 14th episode in the third season. And a couple notes before we get started. This episode was nominated for Outstanding Individual Achievement in Writing in a Drama Series at the Emmys. Robin Green was nominated for this episode. And also John Corbett, who plays uh, Chris Stevens, he was nominated for Outstanding Supporting Actor in a Drama Series. Now, I say nomination because they did not take the win, but if you remember on a previous episode, uh, during this Emmy season, uh, Northern Exposure did win Outstanding Individual Achievement in in Writing for Soulmates. Uh, So if you look at the category that year, uh, this was the 1992 uh, the, the 44th Emmy Awards. Um, the nominees for Outstanding Individual Achievement in Writing in a Drama Series were China Beach. Which I've never actually heard of that show. I've never heard of that either. It's sort of like an evac hospital, sort of like MASH or something. It looks pretty interesting, actually, and it seems to have garnered um, a lot of Emmy noms. So something to look into. If anyone listening uh, has, has a recommendation on that show, please write in. Uh, anyway, China Beach was nominated I'll Fly Away, which is also a show created by yeah. the same creators of Northern Exposure. And then Northern Exposure was nominated three three times for this Emmy, for, for three different episodes, for Soulmates, as we just said, for this episode, Burning Down the House, and later for an episode called Democracy in America, which is coming up next. Ooh. So the Emmys loved this show, you know, that this was a very critically acclaimed show. Or, uh, or it was just a weak year. It could be true. 1992. I I don't know. I don't know what was going on then. Okay, so starting off this episode, we have Maggie being visited by her mother. Right. So uh, we get Maggie's theme, right? Well, I guess so first Maggie mentions to Ruthann that her mother is coming into town and she needs to get some sort of special jam because her mom is very particular. But no, yeah, Maggie's theme plays as Maggie is driving her mother into uh, Sicily. Uh, Jane O'Connell is her mom's name. Yeah, I think that Maggie's theme has actually played three more times throughout the episode, but one is like a very slow, I think a minor key version of Mm. Maggie's theme, Mm -hmm. I think is what's going on over there, which I really enjoyed. Do you know what scene that was in? Yeah, it comes in at the scene whenever they're on the bench after the house has been burned down and they're just having a one-on-one conversation. 
Right, right. Okay, yeah, that's true. And it's like a little slower, a little more dramatic. Yeah, I like it. Great, great song. <laughs> yeah. Overall on this plot line, I, I, I like it. I don't know if I love it, but right. I appreciate the subtext that they're trying to get through. So to begin with this, Jane O'Connell, Maggie's mother, is coming into town. And Maggie assumes it's because she's going to berate Maggie or, or do something involving with her with Christmas. Uh, yeah, yeah. To apologize, perhaps, for... Uh, if you missed it in the Christmas episode, Maggie normally goes home to visit her family, but this year her mom and dad, um, took a trip like to some islands and sort of was just like, sorry, Maggie, we'll, we'll see you next year. So Maggie thought perhaps her mom was returning to apologize for this. But as we come to find out, there are other reasons. Um, real quick, I just wanted to, before we really get into this plot, uh, just some quick description of Jane O'Connell. So Maggie describes her to Ruthann as a calligrapher, a person who organizes spice racks, and uh, someone who swims 66 laps a day. It definitely feels like, you know, Jane O'Connell, just like her f- Maggie's father, Frank O'Connell, it's someone that, uh, something that Maggie's like was trying to escape from Gross Point, Michigan, I believe. And, and that's kind of why she's come out to Alaska wants to live her life her way, sort of sort of to rebel against this. Yeah, so Jane O'Connell was characterized as a person that lives by routine. She right. always does these particular things. She knows what she wants, which comes to a juxtaposition uh, in this episode where she discovers that maybe she doesn't have everything planned or she can't plan for everything, Ooh, like a yeah. failing marriage or that's a great... something that's falling apart in her life. The thing that I always have a little bit of... Uh, trouble grasping this in television shows and in movies. So we always see this classic structure of somebody trying to escape suburbia. That idea of you live with that white picket fence with a golden retriever and a boy and a girl as your children and you go to a very well-off public school and then they go get married and then you grow old with your loved one, whoever that may be, and then you pass away and your children carry on with the same exact life. <laughs> yeah. And a lot of people find fault with that. They're like, that's so boring. That's uh, that's not living life to the fullest. That's living in a predetermined diorama that's already been built. Your life has already been played out, so why are you even doing it? And I would argue and say, you know, sometimes it's not too bad to have disposable income. Sometimes it's not <laughs> too bad to have some sort of structure knowing that when you wake up, your life won't just catapult. I'm using all sorts of this episode's <laughs> elements. Into yeah, this, yeah, this, uh, is, this is all tying into your thesis here. This is but <laughs> sometimes you, it's it's comforting to have four walls around you so, rather than it all being burned down. I see what you're saying. Because So what eventually happens, we'll get there, but Jane is, uh, she's going to change her life in, in a large way. She feels like she hasn't really lived her life and she's going to escape this you know sort of picket fence uh, that you're describing. But uh, yeah, I see what you're saying. I think the argument is, you know, the argument for the escape from that sort of um, lifestyle is the idea is like, you don't, you shouldn't be necessarily breaking your back just to live uh, by sort of this preconditioned assignment of like, you know, everything you just described, that long list of like get a job, get a family, white picket fence and all that. You shouldn't necessarily be breaking your back just to just to get there. But I do agree with you. You know, if you're in that spot, um, I think there's a lot to be said about family and love. And that could be, you know, pure happiness. That's like what life is about, you know? So trying to escape that or trying to have a crazy adventure, um, while it's great for movies and TV, you know, don't be afraid to do what you want and live a safe, 
happy life with your family, I guess. But uh, there's there's arguments for for either or. Um, so you know, I can't fault. Oh yeah, <laughs> absolutely. There's arguments totally on the other side, being like, no, like you should go do your dreams, like pursue it, do what you want, whatever, even if it's far fetched. But it's, it's not, not to say that reality. your dream could be uh, to have a family and to have that white picket fence. I guess. Yeah, I don't know why we're faulting them. Like, I remember distinctly one memory that I have from high school was that I think somebody, he wasn't doing it ironically. He was talking about the Weeds theme song, the television series Weeds uh-huh. with Mary Lewis Parker. And I think it's in the lyrics of the main theme song, there's something about people living in these ticky-tacky houses. And he was saying like, oh, you know, I'm against the system. Like, I'm bucking against that. I'm not going to grow up my life doing that. And it's like... I don't think that that's anything, I don't know, too wrong. I, we, we've talked about this a lot, but yeah, there, there's um, there's pros and cons for either, you know, don't be so set in your ways that you just believe that that kind of lifestyle is wrong. You know, there's there's a reason for, for either. Yeah, but let's go back into Jane O'Connell. Yes, okay. I think that as a character, she makes a whole lot of sense to be Maggie's mother, just like Maggie's father makes a whole lot of sense in that together they would have created Maggie or the this person that Maggie is. Yeah, and uh, so let's get there. So Jane and Maggie go to have uh, a meal at the Brick, and this is when Jane reveals that, no, she didn't come to Sicily just to apologize for the Christmas uh, fiasco. She's here to tell Maggie that she's divorcing uh, Frank, Maggie's father. And obviously this comes as a, a big surprise to Maggie. It's sort of elongated through the next scene when Maggie brings her mother uh to, to Maggie's house. And uh, this is sort of the first time that we get uh, sort of this bit of information that Maggie is not really happy with her house. Her, her mom says something to the effect of, you know, you, you say you like hate this house or you're, you know, it's old. It's uh, Maggie says it, it's, it's not antique. It's old and used and beyond repair. Yeah. It's almost as if Maggie's trying to fool herself into loving this house. Like she looks at this old useless stove and she says like, instead of saying that, it's all of these things. It's She's almost saying like, oh, it's vintage. Like it's got its charms in being irreparable and, you know, not usable. So she's trying to delude herself into thinking that this house is what she wants. But um, her mom, who is like trying to, you know, make maybe make Maggie feel better about it. You know, it's like, oh, it's antique. It's nice. Uh, is also the one who says, you know, oh, you, you said you like you're not happy with this house. Uh, you know, what's wrong with it? But I, I, you know, obviously I think, I don't remember if this sort of language is used about Maggie's house before this episode. I think obviously it's being used here to set up uh, the, you know, what happens ultimately to Maggie's house later in the episode. But we do get, you know, a nice big establishing shot of the front of Maggie's house. I think we've seen the outside of Maggie's house before. I, I can recall in the pilot, when Joel wakes up and has uh, like toast or breakfast with Rick on the porch, you know, we, we see sort of the front, but the shot in this episode is a nice wide, we see like the whole house from, from an angle I, I don't think we've seen before. I was also kind of confused that later on in the episode when they showed uh, charred remains of the house, it almost looks different from where it would have been built originally. Like it looks like it's against the side of something, whereas originally I thought it stood by itself. Yeah, I can't really say. I... I guess if I looked back, we could probably figure that out. But what you're getting at and what's probably likely is it's sort of just the shell was constructed by, you know, maybe the set designer or the art department, you know, and and they could move it around wherever they wanted. 
or they built it in a particular spot because it was easier to do that. So the next scene that we see of Maggie is that she's at the brick and she's, you know, kind of doing a little bit of day drinking with hauling. Yeah, she tells her mom that, you know, she's got to get out of there. And what does she do? She goes straight to the brick, gets really drunk, has a conversation with Holling, who, we, who we've described. I, I really like those scenes between Holling and Maggie because they seem to have a really strong relationship that's not super explored, but you just kind of understand that. It happens in some deleted scenes in the first season. And um, yeah, I, I just like scenes between the two of them. It's They're not often paired together, uh, but it makes a lot of sense. He's sort of like a father figure uh, to her. But in this scene, uh, just very briefly, Holling sort of talks about in his time, in his experience when he was young, uh, love and marriage was more about survival rather than happiness. You know, now Jane O'Connell is is done with this marriage. She's looking for her happiness rather than, you know, sort of a survival aspect of, you know, getting married, starting a family. Yeah, I wonder if she even stuck with the marriage so long was because she was trying to stay for the children. Yeah, I think that's, doesn't she allude to that? She says, you know, marriage with Frank was was really hard, but um, it was easier whenever they had the kids in the house, you know? Yeah, I agree. And I think that's a common symptom of a lot of late marriages whenever it gets toward the, uh, you know. Divorce, I guess. Yeah, toward that stage. And... Honestly, quite frankly, I don't know which one is the right answer. It's like whether you stay for the marriage because of the children and then wait until they get older or to divorce early so that you may have your own happiness. Like whose happiness should you be thinking of? Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, this is that's obviously a very hard question with uh, lots of variables. So I don't want to give any answer to that. But yeah, I, mean. I don't even have the answer <laughs> to that. But it, it, it's it's happening in this episode where it's like we see that Jane wants to go over to happiness now. Yeah, now it's it's a little easier of a decision to make because the kids aren't in the house. Mm-hmm. Also in this scene, Maggie sort of lets her her problems be known. She speaks out. the The idea is she's not upset that the idea of Jane O'Connell and Frank O'Connell being in a loving relationship. She's not upset that that was sort of a lie. She's more upset that the idea that she was rebelling against, like her parents, um, was a lie. She says, the problem is that all my life I've been rebelling against something that didn't even exist. Yeah, she's feeling that she's a rebel without a cause now. That's exactly it. Yeah, it's like sort of like her rebellion was what defined her. You know, that's what brought her perhaps out to Alaska. And um, now there's nothing to kind of pin that definition of her life to, you know, it's like she defines herself by being not what her mom and dad are. And it turns out that her mom wants to, you know, she finds out later that her mom wants to just explore the world sort of in a way that Maggie wanted to just get out and, uh, and invent herself. Yeah. This is all good ultimately in the end for Maggie, because if you pin your identity of what you are not, then that's, never a healthy way True. to establish yourself, I, I find. So this fire that comes later in the episode and burns down her house, <laughs> I know it's corny and I know it's cliche, but it's like, oh, it's like, it's fire is cleansing. It's another start to it. It's a new way for Maggie. Like a phoenix s- from the ashes. Yeah, exactly. As Chris says. So it was not the best way for her to establish her identity, to be counterpoint against what she thought that her parents represent. Mm-hmm. I also find that to be... I guess it's part of her character 
But I also thought it was kind of selfish to not think of her parents at that moment, but only think about herself in the idea of what she was rebelling against. Like you said earlier, she wasn't necessarily sad or angry that her parents were divorcing, which I think is, you know... Yeah, that's you care a really, about your parents. Yeah, it's a difficult thing to even think about. So she wasn't very sympathetic to that cause, which I don't think the show creators were doing blasé. I think they were showing Maggie's character through those interactions. Yeah, and and I think we've seen it before where Maggie sort of seems to be thinking more selfishly uh, during other people's problems. I'm trying to remember, there's an episode when Elaine comes back to visit Joel and it seems like now Maggie is more concerned about uh, her relationship with Joel rather than Joel and Elaine. But by the end of the episode, you can tell that Joel really, that uh, rather Maggie really cares about what Joel's going through rather than just, you know, thinking about herself and, and her relationship with Joel. Right, right. So should we get into the fire? Yeah. So Maggie steps out of the brick. She's pretty hammered at this point. And it's nighttime and there's like some sirens. An emergency vehicle goes by and... There's a fire we hear at the corner of this street and that street, which Maggie uh, can translate to, yet that's her house. Her house is located there. So they run over, and it's a pretty amazing spectacle for, you know, sort of if you would say this is like a low-budget television show. I don't think it was the lowest of budgets, but certainly not um, Game of Thrones or anything. But there's like a huge building on, you know, her house is on fire. There's emergency vehicles. I like that Maurice is a volunteer firefighter. He's he's there in that scene and he says, it's too late, Maggie. Uh, it's, it's all up in flames. Yeah, was it revealed earlier in the series that he is a volunteer firefighter? No, I, I don't think so. Really? Because I thought maybe I just missed that detail. Because it makes a whole lot of sense when you yeah. think about it. Like character-wise, it's like, oh, of course he would be that. And can we take a second just to talk about Maurice in this episode? I actually really liked him. Maurice is so good. I mean, he's uh, this is like going to go into sort of Chris plotline later, but mm-hmm. but yeah, no, go ahead. Yeah, I like that he's the volunteer firefighter. It fits into his character perfectly. That you know, despite all of his flaws uh, and his outdated views of in twenty twenty eyes, he probably believes heavily in civic duty. And one of your civic duties is to like go help out those in need. Uh, and the m- most picturesque way that's ever going to come about is a house on fire. You don't haggle over the price of the hose. You go and help them immediately. So when I saw that scene of him turning around and telling Maggie, it's like, oh, it's too late. You can't go in there. I was like, oh, no, that's great. Like, I'm so glad it wasn't like a random extra that was there. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty cool. And it's a great use of uh, Maurice. And I think you nailed it. Uh, you know, sort of the the reasoning behind why Maurice would be would be there to um, to protect. And... This is so we talked about Maggie's theme. Maggie's theme is employed in this scene. And at first, I thought it was sort of the worst uh, usage of the theme because it's such a dramatic moment. And Maggie's sort of like joyful theme starts playing when her mom is uh, confessing to, you know, basically uh, she, she's the reason why the house is on fire. Uh, but I think Janine Turner, you know, Maggie's actor, uh, really leans into. Uh, this sort of explosive reaction, you know, yelling at her mother. And and it really is uh, heightened by Maggie's theme behind it. It it kind of adds a little bit of a comedic side to this uh, disaster. But um, yeah, maybe it was just like how the music started coming into the scene. I think it maybe came in a little too early. I don't know how I would have done it differently. But uh, in the end, I think it was a pretty good 
pretty cool choice to put that song there. Yeah, I agree. I think at the very end, it came in a little rocky, but you know, it's solidified. Yeah. Um, Maggie ends up sleeping at the brick on a pool table. Um, Did I not have a couch? Right. (laughs) Or even the chair. Like, have you ever slept on a pool table before? I've never, but Shelly says it's, it's not so bad. I think... I'm pretty sure I did in my teenager years in a mutual friend's house. They had a pool table in the living room and they were having one of those like crazy teenage parties where you do, you know, crazy teenage things. And I'm pretty sure they ran out of beds and I didn't want to sleep on the floor. So I'm pretty sure I just slept on a pool table. And was it not comfortable? I think I would have preferred the floor. (laughs) Okay. Um, But yeah, in this scene, I really like um, Maggie's despair here. I'll, I'll play a quote. I have no pillows. I have nothing. I have no underwear. If I had a pet, it would be dead. You could probably stay here as long as you need to. Everything I had was in that house. I have nothing. I feel nothing. I am nothing. So yeah, just like a totally defeated Maggie. And, you know, she's homeless, essentially. She has no possession. Her life is ruined. I like at the end of the scene, Marilyn... Uh, has visited and she brings, you know, clothes and, and stuff from the tribe. And Shelly's trying to cheer Maggie up. She says, look what Marilyn brought you, Maggie, stuff. <laughs> it's like a random bag of, of uh, you know, essentials, perhaps. What is the one item you would be most devastated by if you lost it in a fire? I think, Or the, just some, like really anything, like if you just lost it. I think the easy answer would be, like hard drives because all of my work is like saved a uh, video and, and this podcast are like saved on hard drives. Um, so it represents something that's like kind of not physical. It's zeros and ones, but once that's lost, uh, it just kind of represents all this work that you put into it. You, you'll never be able to see it again. Huh? Let me think if there's another answer, but do you have one? Yeah. I, so it would be either my house or my car. And I don't mean the house with all its possessions. I mean, even if I got all of my possessions, TV, couch, dishes, you know, all those memorabilia, even if I got that all out of the house, if the house itself burned down or if my car just got, I don't know, it just exploded or something, (laughs) I would feel very devastated. I would feel very much at a loss because those are the two locations that I spend the most in is like the physical place of my house or inside my car driving. Yeah, so basically what was happening to Maggie, though, as is established at the, you know towards the beginning of this episode, is like Maggie didn't really like the house anyway. I mean, I don't know if that was true before, but but that's what they're uh, telling us in this, the beginning of this episode. Well, it seems like it's not necessarily the shelter of the house that Maggie is missing, but the possessions inside of the house that she is missing. Or at least saying that like she has nothing now, so she is nothing, you know? Yeah. Nothing, you know, she hasn't, she's still in shock, but I guess what she's fixated on is the idea that, you know, material possessions make you uh, uh, exist, I guess. (laughs) I do like that she says, I really like this quote in this scene. Maggie says about her mother, she says, first she ruins my life and then she ruins my life. And so to me, it's like obvious, it's not enough for this to be a problem for Maggie. You know, the idea... The, the divorce of her parents being a problem for Maggie, that's far away. That's in Gross Point. Maggie got away from that. So she doesn't really have to wake up every morning and think about that. So th- that bombshell news is is not a huge problem. You know, that that's, you know, ruins my life. But the proximity of this, uh, you know, her house burning down, that's like close to home. That 
is her home. And, you know, that is uh, really how her mom's going to sort of like shake up uh, her life. Yeah, that's actually really cool that you brought that up. Now that I think about it, you're right. All those problems with the divorce, that all is in Gross Point. That's Gross Point, Maggie. That only happens once a year. Exactly. This is Alaska, (laughs) Maggie. And now this hurricane of a woman, I guess... Jane O'Connell. Jane O'Connell is just, not that she's necessarily a bad person, but the mere presence of her in Alaska causes Maggie's house to explode. And that's just, what a way to think about that. And like, I completely understand what Maggie is saying. Like one moment she, her house is there without Jane. And the moment Jane arrives, like her mere presence itself destabilizes her entire life. Yeah. And just, you know, ways to look at this occurrence in the, in the next scene with, uh, Maggie, she's sitting on a bench, uh, with just her bags that she got from Marilyn of, of, of the stuff, you know, and her mom comes by, sits next to her and they have a conversation. I'll, I'll play a little clip from that. Doesn't it feel kind of good? What? You hated that house. So, so now you can build a new one. Mother, if anybody's going to burn my house down, I'll be the one to do it. In a way, you're lucky. Lucky? Mm-hmm. I waited until I was 58 until I burned down my house, and I love that house. I wished I'd done it sooner. Mother, you don't seem to understand. It's not a question of whether I liked the house or I didn't like the house. It was my house, Mother, mine. Mother, I'm upset. I am very, very angry. Oh, I know you are. And I like that clip um, because it shows sort of, I mean, obviously... It's a it's one way to look at it. I, I I think Jane I don't think Jane actually when she says I waited till I was fifty eight to burn down my house I think she's speaking metaphorically right um, yeah I don't by think the she, divorce I guess yeah exactly um so it kind of gives you a different perspective you know they're really trying to push that in this episode you know now Maggie I think in another scene um, Holling and Shelley talk about how you know the flow of that house was kind of weird there was no flow from the kitchen to the dining room. And Shelley says, yeah, there wasn't, she never really had a dining room. Maybe she can get one now with a new house. You know, so there's new opportunities now. But I also like that quote too, because, you know, the way it ends, so many scenes in this episode, it feels like Jane is not really listening to Maggie. Not that she doesn't care or that she doesn't have important things to bestow upon Maggie, like important lessons, but it's like she doesn't really fully pay attention to to Maggie. Maybe that's good. Maybe that's bad. Well, I would say that she's half-heartedly listening to her because she has her own problems to deal with. She's dealing with the realization that her life is not as happy as she wants it to be. She's dealing with the divorce. She's dealing with being in a new environment. And Maggie is a full-grown adult. She's 28 years old. And she even says in the scene, like, she's a, you know, a pilot. Yeah. She lives in Alaska. I went there by myself. I think Jane realizes that. And she's saying, like, you know what? You're right. You can take care of yourself, but I'm going to take care of myself now. And all these problems that are happening to you, I know you can handle it. Just like you believe that I can handle my own problems. So I'm going to do that right now. Yeah. And we talked about this a little bit off the mic, but uh, the the very last scene between Maggie and Jane occurs at um, Maurice's house. He's putting up Jane while, uh, you know, Maggie is sort of homeless. Um, I was kind of confused by it. and, And we were talking about it like, what's happening in this scene? Maggie goes 
I guess essentially to apologize and forgive, or rather, you know, to forgive Jane for what's happened. And uh, she asks if Jane would stay a little longer. But um, kind of upsettingly, Jane says, no, I've already like booked these plans. I'm going to go start my life and and go on an adventure. And, you know, that's kind of, you know, Maggie really needs uh, family at this moment. But it's sort of like what we're saying. It's, you know, Jane may not be a mother that's always there for Maggie. But what you just said, Jane sort of realizes that Maggie's got this. She doesn't need her mom here right now. That's the last thing she needs. She's escaped Gross Point. She's escaped her family and done what she wanted to do with her life. And Jane respects that and in a way is almost copying that. Like she wants to do that herself. Crazy conspiracy theory, but do you think <laughs> Jane burned down the house on purpose? Wow. Um, that I don't I don't think so. I mean, I would say maybe it was a Freudian slip at best. Like she her subconscious really meant to do it, but I don't think she consciously meant to burn down the house. I don't think so either. I don't think that she <laughs> planned this. Uh she does uh, allude uh, you know, in that talk when she's sitting on the bench with Maggie, she alludes that when Maggie was a baby, uh, their house almost caught on fire, but she put it out. And Maggie's like, is this like a repeat uh, occurrence or something? So I, you know, I don't think that she, she says, no, no, no. I, I put it out really quickly. It was just a little pot handle that um, caught on fire. But so I don't think that was intentional, but maybe even then it was sort of like a Freudian thing, like a subconscious, uh, she, you know, she saw that opportunity to you know, metaphorically and in this case, um, literally uh, burned down a house in Maggie's house. You know what occurs to me that I don't think Maggie's mother ever apologizes to Maggie. I don't think she says, I'm sorry. No, doesn't she do that very first thing? She says, I'm sorry. And Maggie's like, no, it's not your No, she does. You're right. You're right. You're right. I was about to spin this whole thing about, you know, maybe Maggie's (laughs) mother is just as selfish as Maggie and it's like mother like daughter. But no, you're right. She does. You're right. But yeah, whether conspiracy theory, if this was a conscious decision or not, there is a moment in that uh, bench scene when Jane tells Maggie, she says, Maggie, don't do what I did. Don't sit in your house and wait for it to burn down. Do it now. Rip it up by the roots, blow the lid off, go out and meet your life. Don't wait for it to come to you. So, you know, maybe she didn't do it purposefully, but she can take the action to push Maggie uh, in a direction to start new and, you know, keep inventing yourself every day. Yeah. It's really funny that it all derives from one singular moment, which is the house burning down. And we can see this later on in the episode where a lot of citizens of Sicily feel a moment of catharsis in one moment, which is when Chris catapults Maggie's old piano that used to be in the charred remains. Yeah, that's interesting. It all kind of does... Uh, unite Maggie's trauma with uh, sort of this uh, catharsis that Sicily is is going to experience and, and needs to experience. But let's start from the beginning there with Chris. I like the way the episode opens. Uh, we talked about it earlier, but what's happening is Joel comes by Chris's um, encampment, I guess, and Chris is coming up with some sort of contraption. Joel's visiting and he compliments Chris's cow that he has in his yard. And he asks, is this the one you're going to fling? So that's like, that's our start off. You know, we understand that there's going to be uh, a cow flung through the air. You realize, of course, that by throwing that cow through the air, by catapult, the animal is going to break every bone in its body. 
Mm-hmm. And, and the reason for this is... Create a pure moment. I like when, when that quote is going on, uh, you're focused on the cow, and there's a very slow push in, as Joel is describing, um, the damage that this cow is going to receive, the pain. You know, it's like slowly pushing in on the cow. And, you know, we started off this episode, but I find it so strange that I think even later, Maurice says to Chris, you know, fling two cows, fling three cows if you have to. It's like, they don't really care about this animal. (laughs) Only Joel, he seems to ask everyone. Only Joel is kind of disturbed. So throughout the episode, we see that Chris is being struck by this flight of ideas. Uh, Well, one singular idea, which is to catapult this cow. Now, I have no idea what he hopes to gain out of this, but then again, a lot of things have no rhyme or reason for why you would even do that. And he talks with Shelly about this and Shelly's, you know, asking him all these things about like what constitutes an art piece. And she asks like, is slam dancing like an art? Yeah. He's, I like his response. He says, uh, insofar as it reflects the slam dancers inner conflict with society through the beat. Yes. That would qualify it as art. You know, I, I think that's not the only, um, qualifying factor, but yeah, of course, uh, slam dancing could be, um, a form of art. And uh, he describes his, his uh, flinging of the cow, this art piece, as the aesthetics of the transitory. So um, the idea, um, I guess, here with this, this uh, catapult is that it's a singular moment that's going to happen once and it'll be over. Mm. So a transition, and I guess also from life to death, uh, cow to hamburger, I guess. I, I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, so on modern art, I know a lot of people like to besmirch it. Like the if you go into a modern art gallery and there might be like a painting and it has like squabs of paint all over it and they'll be like it's art. And people, you know, people or well, at least most people will say like that's not art. All you did was take like a glob of paint and just throw it at the wall or you did something like outlandish like you I don't know, like you took uh the cat litter and just threw it against like a cabinet. You were like, that's art. And I guess some people could also construe the same way that Chris is doing this, where he's just catapulting a cow and being like, yeah, that's art. And it's easy to besmirch it. But uh, I've always been of the opinion that in a way that is art. And the reason why is that it's not the end product that matters. It's the idea behind it to get to that end product. Yes, anybody can just take paint and throw it against a wall or take cat litter and throw it against a cabinet, but not everyone has the idea to do it. And that's what makes certain art pieces art. Now, I'm not saying that everything is glorious and beautiful on the strange art pieces that you see in all these museums or anything like that. I'm just trying to, you know, back them up. Yeah, so some art can be uh, an impressive technical achievement. And it's something where it's like, oh, only this artist can do it because that's not easy to do. That's That takes uh, skill. But, um, you know, it doesn't necessarily need to be that. I, I like your interpretation of sort of a concept or an idea, something that makes you think in a certain way, or even an expression capturing, um, having the eye to capture just a certain um, feeling, you know, that, that can be art as well. It doesn't have to require some crazy talent. Well, I guess this catapult does require a lot of math, uh, perhaps to, to function. <laughs> By the way, is this a catapult or a trebuchet? You know, I was just thinking that. I'm pretty sure it's a trebuchet based right. on how it how it go- operates. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, you can call it catapult, I guess, but uh, if you really want to get technical about it, it's probably a trebuchet. Did you ever have to build a trebuchet in high school? I think we did. I can't remember, honestly. 
for physics, maybe? Yeah, it was for physics. We built a trebuchet. And uh, I think the way they graded it was how far it could hurl an object. Makes sense. Yeah. Uh, I also had to build a Ruby Goldberg machine. Rube Goldberg? Whoopi Goldberg machine? Whoopi Goldberg. <laughs> no, Rube, uh, R-U-B-E. Yeah, uh, yeah. Did you have to do that too? No, I don't think I did that. I know we had to build, I don't know, can't remember. <laughs> This episode has a lot of duality, uh, a lot of two sides to a coin idea, because I know that I was just talking about the defense of modern art, but someone could easily counter back and be like, that's no, art needs a purpose. Like John Cage or artists like them, like, no, that that's just being nonsense right there. And we were talking about this earlier was suburban lifestyle, how you could easily argue the other way right here. So with all of this in mind, Maybe this episode of Northern Exposure, at least to me, is showing how you can easily tilt to one way and also easily tilt to the other way. And there's not necessarily a right answer to it. That's true. I would say about um, pertaining to art, I think you gave a pretty good uh, argument for for why, you know, the the statement that, you know, John Cage is not art, why that's wrong. You know, I think we can definitively say that, um, you know, art is not something that you can just decide uh, if, if art is a thing or not, or what is art, what's not. It, it's really sort of in the eye of the beholder, I guess, as you would say. Yeah. So I talked about it earlier, how it's the implementation and the idea that creates the art piece. And in this episode, it's the idea of catapulting a cow that makes Chris want to do this. But then later in the episode, it turns out uh, via Ed, who informs poor Chris that this idea has already been done by a comedy sketch group. Yeah, we talked earlier that Monty Python did it already. Uh, Chris finds this out through Ed, and he's utterly defeated. Um, he doesn't know what to do now because he he can't. He says something later in the episode: "Repetition is the death of art." I, I don't know if that's necessarily true, but in this case, uh, what Chris is probably getting at is it's not a original idea anymore. He kind of thought this would be a great original um, exercise, and it's already been done before. It kind of takes a lot of the joy out of it. And yeah, he's um, pretty beaten up by it. I think later he's found in the barn where he was sort of designing the trebuchet catapult. Uh, He's drinking and just kind of pitiful. And Maurice uh, comes to find him and sort of gives him a pep talk. Maurice comes in and tells Chris, you know, maybe originality isn't as grand as you think it is. That reminds me of a Bo Burnham joke where he is approaching the mic and it's right after a sketch and the lights keep going on and off and he's approaching the mic each time the lights go on and off and it's going really dramatic and right when he gets to the mic he just farts into it and he says originality does not mean that it's good i I don't don't get it it's like so that was like an original joke because it's never been done before (laughs) yeah but it was a crappy one wow um, yeah, no, I really like, we were talking about how much we love Maurice in this episode, and I really, uh, really like this um, pep talk that he gives Chris. I'll play the soundbite. Have you ever been to Rome? Nope. Well, there's this little place in Rome called the Sistine Chapel. There was a guy who laid on his back for two and a half years painting the ceiling of that place, getting paint in his eyes. Do you think he cried at the first sign of trouble? Hell no, he didn't. You remind me of some guys I knew in combat. Guys that were scared to death, had all the starch taken out of them. If you run upon an obstacle, you go through it, 
You go under it, you go over it, you go around it, you do not sit on your butt and feel sorry for yourself. What's really incredible about this pep talk is, I mean, it's it's very true to Maurice's character. It, it feels like it's just sort of like, you have to be a man, you know, it's, he's trying to, he even says later to Chris, you know, this art stuff is a little girly, but you can still keep your manhood if you just power through this. Um, and, you know, that sounds, you know, pretty flat, but it's honestly, it's a super wise piece of advice because what he's actually telling Chris is art is not supposed to be easy. Like obviously Chris says, you know, uh, an artist can't just get inspired. He has to reach down into his soul and find inspiration. Um, but Maurice is just telling him what he already knows. It's like art is supposed to be hard. It shouldn't be an easy endeavor all the time, you know, especially something that you want to do of such a large magnitude and and shake so many people in Sicily. This shouldn't be easy. So don't just like give up. I like, you know, if you run into an obstacle, you're going to power through it. And that's what art is. And, and you've already kind of touched on this, uh, the idea that Chris later says, you know, it's not the fling, um, it's not what you fling, but it's the fling itself. It's sort of that search. That's the hard part of art is kind of uh, the reason for doing it. Yeah, exactly. Like if you have to go through something, whether it's a mistake or not, you should leave, in Chris's case, a Chris-shaped sized hole in the wall <laughs> while you run straight through it, even if you weren't supposed to. And I found it really interesting that you interpreted the scene in that way, because the way that I read it was that Maurice is trying to tell Chris that it doesn't even matter what you're doing, whether it is art or carpentry or radio or anything in this planet, you have to work hard for it. Yeah. Like it doesn't matter. It's the mindset matters more than whatever it, X is of what you're working on. Definitely. I think it's also really cool in this scene when Maurice really gets into it, he gets closer to Chris and Chris is sitting up uh, somewhere up high in the barn. There's like a floodlight, which is uh, sort of lighting the space. Maurice gets pretty close to this floodlight and it gives him sort of a very powerful, almost sinister, dramatic, uh, a dramatic lighting on his face. And it really, the close-up gives him power. The lighting gives him strength. You know, it's, it's very, uh, it's very impressive. He says, you know, just go out there and fling something. It doesn't matter what it is. <laughs> And so Maurice, you know, compares Chris to Maggie. He says, Maggie's not just going to sit down and let this happen to her. And I, I guess this uh, mention of Maggie is, is what turns on the light bulb in, in Chris's head to, uh, you know, go explore Maggie's burned down house. That's the, that's the next scene that we get to, right? Yeah. Chris is going through the rubbish of whatever charred remains of Maggie's house there is. And Maggie is also there. And this is where their two plot points intersect because Maggie is just now realizing that her dioramas have been melted and fused into one amorphous blob. Yeah, like the, the shrines to her uh, lost boyfriends are all combined now. Uh, Chris asks to have it and, you know, not to fling, but to put on the front of the catapult. Not really sure why. I guess it's just a symbol of uh, what Chris calls this uh, primordial ooze. You know what, Maggie? I envy you. You envy me? That's right. This is beautiful. Huh? It's like we're standing at the center of some primordial ooze. Like the world at the dawn of creation. This is my living room, Chris. It's not exactly the dawn of creation. This is what it's all about, Maggie. Destruction and creation. The scarred battlefield of life. Up from the ashes, whoosh, rises the phoenix. 
Yeah, so like we mentioned before, sort of the idea of this uh, burning down the house is, is sort of a, like a phoenix rising from the ashes. Maybe that's what's inspiring Chris. And uh, right after this little soundbite, he notices the piano, which he will later fling. Yeah, I think this is also why I like this episode or like this plot line or this thesis statement, but I don't love it. And the reason why is because they find this one moment, which is going to be flinging this piano or this idea that the act of burning down the house, that that's the epiphany that they need to get their lives into a more positive direction. But at least through my experience, I find that epiphanies are overrated because what can happen can simply happen the other way around. So whenever you put a lot of energy or just power to one singular action, you're giving it too much weight. Uh, a, A lot of times things happen because of small incremental changes, not necessarily because of one gigantic swing. And that's not to say that in life you don't need to do one gigantic swing in order to turn the game around or to, you know, get to where you need to go. That definitely happens. But those are far and few in between than those moments in which you need to do small moments to get to where you are. So I understand what they're trying to do with this house and burning it all down or what the catapult with the piano. But I also find that what happens after they do those acts? whenever the house is burned down or he hurls a piano. Sure, he has his moment of catharsis, but is that going to be it? Like, is that the thing that's going to power you through for the rest of your life? Probably not. You're probably going to go back to whatever it is you were doing. Now, that's a nice little moment, but you need to keep building with it and keep going forward. I think the answer to your question, uh, Maurice hints at it, uh, Maggie's got like an insurance agent who's going to, uh, or at least Maurice is going to try to uh, help, help, propel it, but you know, she's going to get some money for this. She's going to build a new house, obviously. She's not going to be homeless for the rest of the season. (laughs) So after the fling, you know, she'll take those small incremental moments like you mentioned and slowly rebuild her life. And uh, in in meaningful ways, I think. Uh, Yeah, I agree with you. I think uh, not every epiphany has to be grand, um, but I don't think we should discount the grand epiphanies either. You know, I, I think you're right. You should be cautious, but um, also it can come in small packages as well. I do like in this scene when Chris is enamored by the piano, he goes and plays it. He plays a a little melody from As Time Goes By, that song from Casablanca. He plays on the piano. Nice. I heard a story once that during the filming of Casablanca, Humphrey Bogart, who is an attractive but not too attractive man, was very self-conscious that he was with uh, Ingrid Bergman, who is a very, very beautiful woman. So whenever they were filming, he would always take a few steps back behind Ingrid because he was very self-conscious about it. And Ingrid, being a talented actress, knew that she had to stay in focus with him. So she would take a few steps back to match Humphrey. And to the audience, it looked like, oh, look at this. She loves him so much that she's able to take a few steps back to join Humphrey. So that's pretty interesting. Yeah, it's a long-winded way of saying, like, maybe sometimes in order to achieve the things you want, you take a step back rather than going too aggressively (laughs) forward. Interesting. Definitely overanalyzed. uh, But yeah, that's a pretty cool note um, because, you know, they had their own intention for doing it. Like she's just trying to stay in focus, but can be interpreted in many different ways. So the last scene, the flinging, uh, the trebuchet, I guess we should say. At first I was a little confused because I wasn't really sure how, it's not really shown, but how Ed's, uh, he's like in this, 
What is he in? Like a, it's like a crane? It's like in a crane machine tractor thing. Like how is he involved uh, in the flinging? I guess he's pulling a rope that pulls the trebuchet into action somehow. Yeah, he, he's like operating that. Somehow he's operating it. It's not really shown on camera, but I guess that's how trebuchets work. I like how Ed is shown throughout this episode as being a handyman for everything. Like, Yeah, what does he do? Ed is the uh, caddy. Of sorts. Oh yeah, yeah. And in our in our next plot line to talk about. Yeah, but it, it looks like that happens on the same day. So immediately yeah, when that happens, he he's go, like, he runs over. I gotta go yeah. operate this heavy machinery. <laughs> Let me go put on my hard hat, you know, hat. And let me go over there operate this. <laughs> I love it. And I love you that he has the proper licensing and handiwork to even maneuver this machine like how would he even know that we should uh we should have made a timeline for like all these episodes it's like how is ed in all these places at once you know he's doing everything how does he have the wherewithal to know how to do all of this i mean of course he doesn't but it's sicily you know it's like he can do whatever he's just like you know just pull this lever you'll be fine put the hard hat on yeah OSHA doesn't exist um no so this is a the whole scene where chris is talking about you know, it's not about his end goal, but it's about, I, I like how he uses the word groping. Cause at first I was like, that's kind of a weird word to use. Cause in our context, normally in today, groping is usually like fondling or sexual or sexual misconduct or something. But the definition for groping, uh, is to feel about or search blindly or uncertainly with the hands. So, you know, when he talks about groping for art, it's like he's doing a blind search and just sort of like without really knowing what to look for, just trying to find something. And I like that he hammers that in. It's like the art is about the search, really. Hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting, the evolution of language, because, no, definitely, that's a pejorative now, groping. Yes, and the, that is also, you know, that's another definition for groping. You know, it's not only what I just said. It, it could also mean uh, feel or fondle someone for sexual pleasure, especially against their will. So, obviously, that's kind of the context it's taken on today. So, I was a little confused at first, but I'm glad that... Uh, precise uh, vocab word to use in that moment. I think he uh, explained it perfectly. Yeah, I wonder if they knew that that was a strange word to use in that context, but he didn't care because it, like you said, it was meant, yeah. precise. Because surely, Because so. groping 19- has, has meant that for a long time. I think. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Taking back the meaning of uh, groping, yeah, with that, that scene. And um, yeah, we said it already, it's not the thing you fling, it's the fling itself. Thing I learned, folks, this is absolutely key. It's not the thing you fling, it's the fling itself. And Ed uh, does whatever he has to do to get this thing flung. The piano flies through the air and the music accompanying this uh, image is the Blue Danube, you know, that classic, classical music. And it's pretty cool. It's it's flying in slow motion. There's piano keys flying everywhere, kind of like tiny matchsticks because it's so high up in the air. And it comes down to the ground with this crazy discordant noise explosion. And everyone is um, just pretty pretty much in awe. It's like that cathartic moment you're talking about. Do you think there's a deeper meaning as to why he chose a piano to fling? You know, I thought when I first watched this episode, you know, when it starts out, you're like, wow, they're going to actually fling a cow somehow because they keep talking about it. Um, but it gets diverted, you know, and, and it's a piano instead. And I don't know. I can't say. Do you have any? No, I can only guess as to why. Uh, the most obvious one to me is that a piano is both black and white, like a cow. 
So <laughs> yeah. kind of similar right there if yeah. you only use color. Something big, you know, that would make a great explosion at the end. I think they, you know, just did it just to do it. Okay, so we're getting to the last plot point, which is probably the least significant one of the episode. And it's Joel and this chimney sweeper. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. What, I guess probably, um, I don't know if I'd say least significant, but definitely I think what you're getting at is it's not like primary. It's definitely like, you know, secondary, tertiary plot line here. Um, and yeah, he meets this chimney sweep, Bob, who comes to his office asking for his house key. Like he can't get into his house to uh, sweep the chimney. Um, but I think it's an interesting first scene when they meet because uh, this Bob character is almost like very defensive. He's like on the defensive. He seems to be trying very hard to convince Joel that he is in fact a chimney sweep. And I kind of forgot what the storyline was in this episode, though I'd seen it before. But it's obvious now that, uh, you know, he's trying to hide his true identity because while he is, in fact, he is a chimney sweep. Uh, he's probably more recognized as something else, a professional golfer named Larry Coe. Yeah, I thought that Larry Coe was an actual golf player, so I typed it in, and it turns out there is a golf player by the name of Charles Coe. He was regarded as one of the best amateur golfers of all mm. times, but I highly doubt it was... I wonder if there's a connection I mean, there or, or just... Probably not. I do think it's funny the the nickname in the episode is Oh No Co. Like, you know, oh no, he missed the putt, uh, as we'll get into. But um, so it takes Joel a little while to actually figure out who this is, but he he seems to be stuck on this idea that he recognizes uh, Bob. There's a scene, I, I just want to bring it up real fast, in The Brick, where he's asking Bob if maybe they went to summer camp together or something. Uh, I bring it up because the beer they're drinking, you get a very clear look at the label, but because we're watching in DVD quality, it's uh, kind of hard to read. But I'm almost certain just by typing in to the Google search, you can see on the uh, front of the bottle, there's something like it looks like a pyramid in a forest. And I thought that was an interesting logo. Uh, so I just typed that into Google. And there is a brewery called Pyramid Brewing. Uh, it's like a Pacific Northwest brewery. So that that's probably like definitely what that is. Oh, wow. Interesting. So we cut to Joel buying his magazines from Ruth Ann's place and Ruth Ann's got a variety of magazines for him and he subscribes to the New Yorker and like a golf magazine of sorts. First of all, I really like that he subscribes to the New Yorker. Still oh, trying yeah. to hang on to his roots right over there. Of course. Yeah. But it's through the golf magazine that he realizes, I was like, oh no, like it's Larry Coe, the famous golfer that missed that shot at the Masters. Yeah, there was a, like a three-foot putt, and he would have uh, won the Masters. It was sort of like a gimme, and uh, he blew it. You know, he choked, something happened, and, um, you know, this this drives Joel back to his house where he confronts Bob and is like, I know who you are. You're Larry Coe. And uh, Larry is just sort of – I almost thought he – does he – flat out just like leave with the job unfinished. Like he leaves Joel because later he does finish doing the sweeping. But in that scene, at least it feels like he's just like, I'm out of here. I'm not going to do this anymore. Yeah. He figures that the rest of the job can be done by through some simple, uh, chore oh, like, by well, Joel. Yeah. He's well, he does get a little bit of creosote on Joel's like shirt. And he says, Oh, if you put a little laundry detergent, that'll, that'll come out. That's like the button at the end of the scene. Yeah. Yeah. So he does leave the job and I kind of feel for him because he's just trying to escape the past. He's 
having this moment that he had in his life that was supposed to be, like he said, a gimme, and he choked on it, and now he just goes chimney to chimney, Mary Poppins style, just like <laughs> I being... Was, I was really perplexed. Like, what is the psychology of Larry Coe? Is he ashamed? Does he feel like he was cheated out of that victory, or does he feel like it was his fault? I don't think we ever really get the answer at oh, the end of the episode, but... really? I definitely thought it was shame. He just feels totally ashamed and, and doesn't want to show his face. But we also get a, a line from him is he he would... He doesn't really... He doesn't seem to care about it, really, but it's more that uh, he doesn't want to feel the pity from people being like, oh, man, I'm so sorry, Bob. You missed that putt. He's like, he's he's probably gotten that so many times after losing. Like think about, I guess, just like a bronze medalist. Like mm. that's sort of the easy analogy. It's like so close, but I don't know. What do those people feel? I guess it's all different. I was trying to figure out what, what's going on with Larry. Yeah, that's true. Uh, I would still stand by my original statement of saying like, he's just trying to get away from the past, how this well, I guess it does tie into the rest of the episode, how this one action defined his entire life. Like, he's not regarded as like that amazing golfer. He's regarded as that golfer that missed that shot. Yeah. And he's just trying to, he's trying to reinvent, he's doing, you know, what Jane is doing and what Maggie has done, you know, just be a new person. Uh, so you got to admire that. But uh, I do really like the ultimate sort of resolution of this, uh, this plot line. Joel meets up with, uh, oh wait, 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 before I, we actually tie it up, there is one other scene too when, when Joel talks with, Larry, and he flat out asks him, you know, what happened? Hey, Larry. What happened? How'd you miss the putt? You want to know what happened? I'll tell you what happened. I don't know what happened. Well, that was just such an interesting attempt at uh, an explanation for, like, you can't really explain or he doesn't really understand what happened. Yeah, like we're always searching for a particular reason that something happened. Like it has to be this singular action and it has to be because of X, Y, or Z. But in Larry's case, uh, sometimes things just happen and there's no explanation for it as to why he missed that shot. That's why I was wondering, like, does he feel cheated? Like, does it feel like there's no reason why this happened or why it didn't happen? You know, it's just that's what occurred, you know, and he's got to live with that now for some reason. Like it almost, he almost acts as if it was out of his control, but I don't know. That's a really interesting dilemma because there's no other person in the world that has thought about that putt shot than Larry himself. You mean thought more about it or? Yeah. This is given mind to it. Right. And he's probably replayed the scenario a million times in his life. And he's like, all right, well, what happens if I would have like gripped the club a little bit more different? What if I had shifted my foot around? Like I, maybe I would have made that shot. But I guess at the end of the day, what he's trying to say is that all that what if doesn't matter because what did happen was that I didn't make the shot. Yeah. So what, what does it matter what the explanation is? Like what if it – who cares if it, the reason why to make the shot was because I gripped my club wrong. Like it's already happened. Yeah. And I like that. Uh, now we're get to the end of this plot line. I like that Joel and Ed, uh, sort of concoct this, uh, this scene of closure, you know, they reinvent, uh, that game, you know, that final putt at the masters and, um, Larry, you know, seems sort of disinterested, uh, 
He says, what is this, some sort of uh, psychodrama? And Joel says, exactly, like that's what this is. Joel's playing the psychologist and he thinks that uh, Larry maybe lost his confidence. And if he, you know, if he does this, maybe it'll, maybe it'll do something for, uh, for Larry's confidence or, or I guess Joel's idea is he wants to see that golf star that he loved. He wants to see that happen. Uh, he wants to rewrite history maybe, but uh, ultimately I, I don't really think this changes Larry too much. I think ultimately it just kind of gives Joel some sort of satisfaction. Yeah. I wrote that down. I said that the putt was mostly for Joel and not for Larry. I didn't remember what the outcome was. Like I didn't remember if Larry was going to sink the putt or miss it again. And when you were watching this episode, what did you think was going to happen? I thought they wouldn't show it. Ooh, interesting. I thought that that's where the show direction was going to go because ultimately it didn't matter. The yeah, thing that I mattered like the your, most was that he like was even doing it in the first place. Exactly. Like you say, it doesn't really uh, matter the outcome. It's just like that's what had happened. But no, yeah, they choose to show it. Uh, obviously, it's an easy putt and he sinks it. Doesn't seem to change Larry too much, as I've already said, but uh, I don't know. It still feels like a little victory, you know? And uh, I thought it was such a interesting closing to that scene. We end in the wide shot. So the putt goes in, uh, we pull out and Larry says, well, are you happy now? And Joel says, yeah. And um, Larry doesn't walk away. He actually regrips the putter and he's like kind of repositioning. I'm not really sure what he's doing, what the actor decided to do there, but such an interesting sort of uh, last couple frames of that, of that uh, scene. Yeah. I, I I really don't know either. I thought about that too. And it occurs to me that maybe it's one of those things where they cut it early. Like the footage yeah. actually kept going, but the editor of this episode was like, all right, just He's gotta cut find it now. He has yeah. to find a cut point somewhere. So, you know, there could be a thousand reasons for why they chose this, or maybe it wasn't a um an active choice. It's just something that occurred in the editing room. Like it had to be cut that way. For time, maybe, who knows? But uh it is uh, sort of um something to to point out. It's a little interesting. All right, so now is the time in the episode to toss to our guest. Once again, this is someone who has never seen the show before. We like to get a sort of an outsider's take on uh, the series, on the show. And um, this episode is uh, our good friend Matt, who is also the composer of the theme music of this episode. Woo! This, this show. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the theme music you've been hearing uh, all throughout this podcast, much thanks to uh, Matt Jackson for remixing it for us. Uh, I think he liked this episode. Let's hear what he's got to say. Hi, everybody. Uh, my name's Matt Jackson. I have never watched any Northern Exposure at all. This is my second take in doing this because I just did it another time and it was 10 minutes long and they said it had to be under five minutes. So now I'm making it shorter, hopefully. Sorry if I talk really fast. Anyway, takeaways from this episode. I don't know anything other than like, okay, so uh, uh, Lee hit me up a bunch of months ago to like make the little uh, remix for, of the theme song for this. And that was basically the extent of everything I know about this show is just knowing the theme song because of Lee. Thanks. Um, anyway, thank you for choosing me for episode 3.14, the pie episode. Um, I feel really honored. I don't know if every episode is like this. Maybe this was like a season finale or something. I don't know. It felt particularly epic. I have no context. I already said that. Anyway, before the credits even roll, we open with these two dudes talking to like discussing performance art. Um, and how he wants to fling a cow from a catapult. That's Chris. And and wow, he, he makes these points about how Donald Trump is buying out all the artistic space in New York. What year is it? How timely? And I was yelling like, whoa, I'm in before the opening credits even rolled. 
And then the open credits happen. We get right back to Chris over the radio asking for cows to f- murder via catapult. And I'm like, this man, I just wrote sociopath, question mark, because maybe. And he's talking about slam dancing as an art form, which preach, baby, preach. And everybody in town seems to, like, be quite horny for him in a way. I don't know. It's weird. But everybody's given, everyone's very enamored with Chris's cow flinging antics. And they're, they're all about it. Other people, other people that everybody in the town seems to love is the town chimney sweep. Uh, Bob, a.k.a. we learned to be Larry throughout the episode. If if any if if uh, we got our friend uh, Flash Guard, what's his name? Old Doctor Doctor Flash Bash or whatever. I don't like him, but he's like, hey, what's up with that chimney sweep? Everybody's like, he's a damn good chimney sweep, and that's just like who he wants to be, and that's who he should be. He should be able to choose that life for himself. But our doctor friend has other plans for him. We'll get into that in a minute. Underneath our Bob Larry plot and our catapult plot, we have the plot of Maggie's mother, not mom, mother coming to visit, um, dropping the bomb that uh, her and her and Maggie's mom are getting a divorce. Maggie's mom is picky like a six year old and like just kind of like generally one of the worst people, I think. Her one endearing moment I felt was when she was very awkwardly talking about her, her sex life with her soon-to-be former husband and says, whatever creativity he had went into the hatchback. <laughs> Which, like, that one really got me. That was great. Damn, time flies when you're talking about Northern Exposure. I got to hurry up again. Anyway, then we get this really nice image about uh, Chris carrying the post. For his catapult through town like Jesus, followed by a bunch of children. Where those children come from, I don't know. Why did people let their children hang out with this man? I don't know. That's another thing. Maggie has a delightful therapeutic session with the bartender. The classic trope of the bartender therapist. We need to send poor Bob and or Larry over there. And then we get the bomb drop that Monty Python has already launched a cow, which really devastates Chris. So he's pretty in despair. Meanwhile, our, our friend uh, Flashman is just running around Blowing up Larry's spot, giving away his secret, telling the whole damn world, like, super uncool. He's already, like, confronted the dude about it, and clearly Bob Larry wants nothing to do with that part of his past and is just trying to live out here peacefully in Alaska. And here's this old, I'm, I'm assuming, New York D-bag just coming in to all over his dreams of living a private life. Yeah, like, meanwhile, uh, like, later down the line, Bob flat out tells him, like, yeah, I'm moving to Greenland because you outed me. And he's like, oh, just tell me about the putt. Why'd you do the putt bad? Like, go get burnt. Just burn yourself in a fire, Flashman. Um, And then we go to Chris getting a sweet pick top from a military man. I feel like, oh, man, I like, ah. I feel like that was two part, like halves of Chris. I feel like that might have been a schizophrenic moment. I don't know if that military man in the NASA hat was actually like a real character. I bet he probably is. This show doesn't seem weird like that. But I felt like that was two halves of me arguing, like trying to be creative. But there's also this boomer in a NASA hat inside of me just like, oh, chin up, kid. I know. I know art's hard, but you could just, just do it. And anyway, he tells him he's ripe and because he's smelly and he tells him like, you, you don't have it bad. Maggie's got it bad. And I'm like, yep, the boomer in me would say that, too. Anyway, next page, we got Maggie's mitten game and she gives her mother or she finds her mother's shoes in the burnt fire. That mitten game is fire. Sorry, that was insensitive. Um, That mitten game is very strong. It's Fashion Week right now. Take it there. Um, Chris is definitely a sociopath. I wrote, I don't know why later in the episode. I don't know why that's there. 
Hermione's Ferragamos. And then, okay, so I spent this whole episode so, so concerned that this catapult was like a whole season's worth of con- I feel like you could write a whole season around this, this catapult. And I just started this episode like, oh, my God, I hope I get to see this catapult. And, oh, my God, what a payoff at the end where they catapult Maggie's burnt piano. Chris is wearing a sword. He gives this grand speech about Greek mythology and Kierkegaard. And oh my God, it's so satisfying. And everyone in town is like as happy as they should be seeing like an old busted piano getting hurled through the atmosphere of Earth up in Alaska. And it was just such a lovely payoff. And oh my, like, yo, guys, real talk. Is every episode this good? Because like I need to start watching this. Um, thanks for having me. I've already gone over my time. Stay regal, stay relevant. Thanks for having me. All right. So that was Matt Jackson with his guest analysis on this episode. A lot of energy, Matt. Really love it. And it occurs to me that this is the pie episode. Uh, 3.1456. Did I even get the five six I, right? I think you um I think you might have miscalculated there. Yeah, 3.141. Oh yeah, I missed a one. Uh <laughs> I used to have a math teacher in high school that would give us a McDonald's apple pie, like the $1 pies, if we could recite the 10 digits, like the 10 First decimals. 10, okay. First 10, yeah. Hmm. Well, uh, no, yeah. Glad to um, to be notified. This is the pie episode. We totally missed that. But uh, yeah, such a, such a special episode. I think, uh, you know, we didn't really talk about how important in how much of a set piece this episode is. There's a burning house. There's a giant trebuchet. Like a lot of money from this season must have went into this episode. Yeah, that was really interesting that he pointed that out because to any normal passerbyer, this kind of does feel like a finale. Like there's a finality tone to it. Somebody's house gets burned down. There's a huge cathartic moment. Usually those only happen in finales, but no, yeah, this, this is, is like just in Smack the dab in the middle. It's Yeah, it's kind of uh, pretty interesting that they weighted it uh, so heavy uh, at this point in the in the season but uh yeah what a great episode i i have to say thanks matt for cutting it down for us uh i know uh he was really into it i love how he was talking about how man time flies when you're talking about northern exposure (laughs) (laughs) you know one of the uh neatest observations that i got from him was the idea that perhaps maurice doesn't exist like he was uh, a schizophrenic a episode well not I've, i don't think schizophrenic is the right word uh, a uh, hallucination of sorts yeah like hallucination well i guess it could be schizophrenic it's just that i don't want to give the idea that schizophrenia is like the other side of you because it's totally not uh, like the schizophrenia would yeah just we're, be, we're not doctors we're not, we're not doctors but the thing i do know is that it's not like a to be treated lightly disease <laughs> But that idea is kind of interesting because if you did just watch that episode, Maurice only does appear in a few scenes. One is with Maggie and it's kind of alone. So it's just with Maggie. Whenever Which scene is that? It's a firefighter scene. Oh, yes, 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 yes. And then the other is when he comes into the barn. But it's never scenes in which Maurice is with multiple people. No, no, no. no. There is a scene when uh, he's sitting down with Holling and Shelley and then later Joel when that's how Maurice gets the intel that Chris has given up on the, um, oh, like Ed comes by and explains. Right, so, you're right. So all the townsfolk do talk they to Maurice. They do. Oh, that puts a hole in the balloon. Yeah, so that theory doesn't necessarily stand, but maybe what we could uh, theorize is that this episode that happens in the barn is some sort of drunken hallucination. Mm. So Maurice is real, but maybe this uh, boomer energy that uh, <laughs> that Matt points out is actually, uh, you know, this is dueling factors inside of um, Chris's psyche. Mm. The, the artist and the boomer energy uh, that says, you know, you got to keep moving, you know, think about everyone else who doesn't have the... Uh, 
you know, the pleasantries and like the ability that you have, you know. He also remarks on the mitten game that Jane has. Uh, yeah, either Jane or Maggie. It's in that scene. I, I didn't even notice. Yeah, maybe I should actually go back and look at it right now. Okay, so it's not in that scene with Maurice, at least uh, on a quick glance. Uh, I mean, the, the scene in Maurice's house with Jane. At a quick glance, she's neither of them are wearing mittens. Maggie is wearing mittens in the scene with Chris in the burndown house, but those mittens are kind of gray and like checkered. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what, what mittens they're talking about. Maybe that's it. Yeah. Uh, I didn't notice any other mittens myself. But um, no, yeah. So I guess uh, mittens can be impressive. You know, don't don't take them lightly. Uh, we got we to gotta pay more attention to the costuming. You know, we used, we used to kind of point that out. We really should. I think that's something that goes a little bit underground in a lot of stuff in uh, TV productions or movie productions or theater productions is the costume design. I like how, you know, a lot of our guests get um, can't recall the characters' names. I like his terms for Joel. He calls him Flash Guard and then Flash Bash. <laughs> but, uh, of course, you know, Joel's not an easily likable character. And if you think about it, you know, Matt brings out a good point. Joel is sort of like forcing uh, this picture of Larry onto Bob. You know, Bob wants to be his own person. He doesn't want to be Larry Coe anymore. And Joel just really has this uh, definition that he wants to see come to life. Yeah, he's forcing Joel's own perception of him onto himself, onto Larry right there. And you're right. A lot of people don't like Joel uh, Flash Gordon Fleshman. Uh, (laughs) He is someone that takes a little while to get into. Yeah, I mean, there are episodes when you can see, you know, he's a doctor, he cares for people, and he helps people. Uh, And this episode, you know, maybe he's a little too selfish, because that's kind of what he's doing. You know, he he ends up ruining everything for Larry, you know, like Larry has to move to Greenland now. But um, I don't know, maybe there is some sort of uh, good intentions there. You know, he was trying to help Larry overcome maybe something that has clouded uh larry so obviously larry doesn't care it's already said and done this failure you know quote um at the the three foot putt obviously he's over it he wants to change but at the very least if you could say anything nice about joel at least he's proving to larry that you know it's not a lack of talent or lack of ability that's not larry's problem that's not what ruined his life just the way the chips fell. And I think maybe Larry already came to that conclusion, but this is just proof that like proves that conclusion. It's like Larry didn't fail because he couldn't make that putt. It's an easy putt. He made it. Uh, It's just unexplainable in a way. Yeah. Well, at the very least, Joel must have been the first one to at least try this stunt with Larry because I don't believe this is the first time that Larry's... um Disguise... Tried to to, like confront or his disguise fell. Yeah. I don't believe this is the first time because it seems like He's only uh, been in Sicily for five or six. Oh, but he did say five or six years ago is when the Masters game happened. Oh. So he might have been in Sicily without anyone knowing. Holy crap, you're right. But I, I think this is probably the first time that he's um, been given this sort of like opportunity to recreate that that scene. Yeah, at least Joel says that going for him. So we talked about it a second ago, but I do want to mention it again. The scale, the grand scale and sort of budget that was probably thrown into this episode. There's a really great article in the Los Angeles Times called How Far Can a Piano Fly? And it talks about um, John Wayne, who uh, is, John Wayne is the guy's name. I guess his full name. Not the actor? No. (laughs) I think his full name is John Wayne Sierra. 
And he is the person, I guess, who um, designed this trebuchet in this episode. So you can kind of learn more about him and learn more about this episode if you uh, checked out that article. 1996, how far can a piano fly? What's the answer? So according to the article, the pianos flew about 120 yards, so more than a football field. It's pretty cool. And apparently they did nine flings. And the director of the episode edited it all together into a, a single flight. You know, there's a lot of those uh, slow motion cuts. You know, nine different pianos were flung that day. Oh. And then the last thing I wanted to mention, we, we didn't talk about it in our um, analysis, but I like that uh, Matt was impressed with the quotes, the, the Kierkegaard and uh, the James Joyce. I'll play those quotes uh, before we toss to the end. I think uh, Kierkegaard said it oh so well. The self is only that which it's in the process of becoming. Art, same thing. James Joyce has something to say about it too. Welcome, O life. I go to encounter for the millionth time the reality of experience and to forge in the smithy of my soul the uncreated conscious of my race. We're here today to fling something that bubbled up from the collective unconsciousness of our community. All right, so that does it for burning down the house. Next episode is number 15 in season three. It's called Democracy in America. Thoughts? A town hall episode involving voting? Maybe maybe it involves the mayor. Well, that's a pretty good guess. I think, um, yeah, you know what? I'm just going to go ahead and spoil it. Yeah, I think we're going to be talking about the mayor of Sicily in the next episode. Ooh, and perfect because it's primary season in real time for us. <laughs> yeah, this is kind of fitting in our uh, in our chronology in uh, the year 2020. All right, Charles, I'll see you next week. All right, I'll see you next week, Lee. Northern Overexposure Podcast is edited by me. Our theme song was remixed by Matt Jackson. Thanks to Laser Kitties for the podcast artwork. And thanks to Matt Jackson again for being our guest analyst. If you'd like to write into the podcast, you can reach us at northernoverexposurepodcast at gmail.com. And of course, thank you for listening.